0: Well, hello, Two Cities Church. Whether you are watching online, you're in the room, you're in the lobby, happy Father's Day. One more time for the dads in the house. Dads, we love you, we honor you, we celebrate you. We believe that your presence in the home, your presence in the church, your presence in the culture is essential for God's plan for a flourishing future and a flourishing family. Speaking of family, When we are with Two Cities Church, we are with family. My name is Jeremy Woods, and I'm the lead pastor of Coastway Church. We are a new gospel-centered church being sent to serve and make disciples in the Myrtle Beach, Conway, South Carolina area. And Two Cities Church, you are sending us. You have been an encouragement to us. You have enabled us. You have empowered us in so many ways. And one of the reasons why Uh, so much of our heart has been planted here in Winston-Salem is because you have shared so much of your heart with us. You know, anytime that you seek to do something big, bold, and brave for the name and fame of Jesus, typically people are going to respond in one of two ways. And I know this is general. There's a lot of nuance to this, but typically there's one of two ways that people will respond. They're either going to hinder your belief, or they are going to help your belief. So maybe hindering your belief might be like, are you sure you want to do that? I mean, you've been on staff at a great church in the beautiful mountains of Western North Carolina for the past 10 years. There's a lot of job security. Your your faith has formed there. Your family has flourished there. Your future could be there. The weather is great. It's hot in Myrtle Beach. Are you sure? Are you sure you would just want to sweat all the time? I mean, come on, it's very risky. So yeah, there are people who will hinder your belief, but then there are people who will help your belief. They will take your faith further, faster by pronouncing over your life and over your calling, Jesus is worthy. He is good. He is God. You should do everything that he has put in your heart. And speaking of Myrtle beats, I mean, dynamic growth. College students, retirees, families, spiritual need, what an incredible strategic opportunity to plant a church that could be a multiplying movement, to plant even more churches. And Two Cities Church, that has been your voice over our call. And for that, we say thank you. And you know, whenever you are leaving something, you're probably grieving something, And grief, you know, it's not something that we need to avoid. It's not something that we need to say, oh, that's a girl thing or that's a guy thing. No, it's a human thing. Grief is our natural response to loss. Whenever we lose something that we love, we grieve. The separation, the distance, the forsaking. And in order for us to grieve well, we must believe well. We must be able to believe well. And Two Cities Church, you have helped us process the the grieving, the leaving, the transitioning, the, the relational, emotional, and physical trials that accompany a big move for the mission of God and for that Two City Church, we say thank you. You have done so much for so many, but that so much has been so personal for us. We love you, we are grateful. For you. And here's what I would encourage you to do, whether on your app or in your lap, go ahead and join me in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm privileged to pick up in week three of this series on Paul's letter to Timothy. And this is week three of Poured Out. And if you missed the first two weeks, I would encourage you, please go back and catch up. Uh, uh, The first week, Pastor Caldas walked us through how to overcome fear. And how to put courage in and to live a courageous faith. And that's how we pass on the faith. Week two, he talks about how we overcome shame and how we live in the light of victory and approval and confidence that is given to us in the gospel. And here's what's going on. Paul, all right, everybody say Paul. Paul. Paul, the most famous and fruitful church planter in history is on death row for his faith. But here's what's amazing about the letter is instead of Paul waiting with anxiety or worrying about a worst case scenario, what he's doing is he's busy writing a letter to his favorite church planter, his favorite mentee, who will then go and pass on the faith to future generations. And what we see about this letter, I don't know, when was the last time that you actually wrote a letter? Maybe we need to bring that back because writing letters, it really helps you think like personally. And that's what Paul is doing. It's a personal letter. It is a pastoral letter to Timothy, just a little bit about Timothy. You know, we believe that Timothy was, maybe he was a younger pastor, maybe in like his mid thirties, and he's pastoring in Ephesus. This is a place where sin is celebrated. And all the while he's pastoring while trying to untangle the knots of fear, of failure and family wounds. You're like, well, that's practical. That's practical. Yeah, welcome to the Bible. This is why we go to the word of God for a word from God. And furthermore, on the context, the letter is actually written from prison as Paul's departing from earth to eternity. So you can imagine a man on death row who is looking to leave behind a lasting legacy for what truly counts. Every word has weight. And Paul's progression of thought at this point, he's laser focused on one thing, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And that is the multiplication of faith for future generations. And before we dive in, can we just notice something about what's going on? Paul is living his last days for what's forever instead of what's for now. And if we want to do the same thing, when, when our lives on earth are over, we want to look back and we want to say that we live for the future. We live for our family. We live for our faith. And if that is the heart posture of, of you, and it, let it be. Then we ought to lean in and see what Paul's up to. So from the beginning and through the Bible, God's purpose and plan has never changed. In the garden commission to Adam and Eve, what does he say? He says, be fruitful and multiply. And then Jesus sent by the Father Having accomplished salvation, he gathers his disciples together from the Garden Commission to the Great Commission. It's the same thing. Go and multiply. Go and make disciples. And I heard it uh, described this way recently, and I just thought that this was a good way to think about the Christian life, is we can be like a starfish or we can be like a spider. Now, they're both shaped very similar, but something very different happens whenever they experience or encounter pain and pressure. When a starfish encounters pain and pressure and one of its limbs is severed, that limb goes and multiplies. But when a spider faces pain and pressure and is crushed, it's over and dead and done. Amen. I don't think there's going to be any, any issues with that. But here's, here's the point in all of this. Christians are called to be like starfish, not spiders. As we encounter pain, As the pressures of of parenting, of work, of life, of school, of all the everyday stuff of life, as we encounter that, we are called to persevere through that pressure and pass on the faith, be like a starfish, not a spider. And so what I want to do is I want to show you how Paul is motivating Timothy to multiply the faith. And there's three big factors that are at work in this subset of thought in Paul's epistle to Timothy. And uh, the three factors that I wanna show you is the means of multiplication. Where do we get the strength to do this? And then there is the method of multiplication. How do I actually multiply? And then there is the mindset of multiplication. How should I think as I go to multiply? So verse one, go ahead and join me. 2 Timothy chapter two, here we go. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul goes ahead and plays his hand. And he says, the means of multiplication is the grace of Almighty God. Notice what Paul says. Notice how he addresses Timothy. And there is so much grace just in the way that he identifies his relationship with Timothy. He says, my child. Now, Paul was not biologically Timothy's Father, but what he had done is he had functioned as a spiritual father, filling a lot of the gaps in Timothy's life that was left from what was either a timid dad or a terrible dad. We're not entirely sure, but really, whenever you think about your dad, there's there's basically kind of three ways that you could think about your experience with your dad. Uh, Maybe you had a terrific dad. A terrific dad is a dad who's going to be brave. He's going to be bold, he's going to speak grace, and he's going to speak truth into your heart. And you will form and flourish under such a dad. Maybe that was your experience. And if so, praise God for that. One more reason to just see the grace of God present in your life. But then there are timid dads. So a timid dad would be a dad who is kind of silent, stiff, definitely scared, does not stand in the gap, for his sons and his daughters, stands on the sidelines in those strategic moments like Pastor Kyle was talking about, Jesus' baptism or that event in in your life. He wasn't there. He was timid, probably selfish. But then there are terrible dads. And I, I wanna be as pastoral with this as I possibly can because the layers of injury inflicted on our lives by terrible dads run deep into the core. And what we do is whenever, if you grew up with a terrible dad, then it is likely that you have spent the rest of your life trying to recover from those wounds. And so a terrible dad is a dad who, when he shows up or whenever he leaves out, it causes abuse, abandonment, adultery, which results in division, despair, or divorce. And here's, here's the hope. If that was you, you had a timid, you had a terrible dad, or you had a terrific dad, what is what is it that Paul is doing right here when he addresses Timothy as his child? He is helping Timothy overcome what seems to be a father wound by functioning as a spiritual father in the faith. And here's here's the, the, the redemptive outcome. Here's, the, here's what renewal could be like. Here's what the grace of God could be, not just to you, but through you. And it's this, even if, you're not a physical father, you can be a spiritual father to someone in their faith. And even if you did not have a terrific physical father, there are spiritual fathers and mothers who can come in and that's what the church is about. You know, who can come in and can help fill a lot of the cracks and the crevices that were left by an absent or a dad that really hurt you. And that's what Paul is doing right here. And what does it look like to be a great spiritual father or even a spiritual mother to another in the faith. It looks like multiplying the strength of God into the life of another person. This is why Paul, he goes on in verse one, be strengthened. So the way that this is worded uh, in the original language means that we are receiving strength from another who is stronger. So we are passive, we are being acted upon. And so what uh, really comes to my mind right here is, Um, you've probably seen the movie Christmas Vacation and you probably know who Uncle Eddie is. So Uncle Eddie, he shows up to Clark's house and his busted up, beat up uh, RV. And it comes to Clark's attention that Uncle Eddie's not going to be able to provide Christmas gifts for his children. And so I think they show up at Walmart or something like that. And Clark's like, hey, you know, you know, we talked about it and, you know, we just want to help you, you know, provide Christmas for your kids. And Uncle Eddie, he's just like astonished. And you're like, what is he about to say? And he says, Oh, Clark, that's mighty nice of you. But you just need to understand, if you're gonna do that, we also want to get you something real nice. And so in this moment, everybody who's watching the movie is just like, who does that? Like, that is, that is so dumb. He, he is the one who's paying the bill for you to get him something real nice. But did you know that we actually do this with God? We, we look at God and we look at the gifts that he gives to us and we have this Uncle Eddie mindset where we're like, well, God, if you're gonna strengthen me, I wanna get you something real nice. You're gonna be really glad that you blessed me with that. And, but here's what we have to understand is before we can be strengthened, we must first admit that we are weak. Yes. What we all need, we all need a supply of strength that will fill us up so that we can then be poured out. Two Cities Church, I wonder, when was the last time that you just said out loud to God, I can't, but you can? Husbands, when was the last time that you said, I can't love my wife as Jesus loved the church in my own strength I am weak, but God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I surely can. You have given all that I need for life and godliness. Or maybe there's anger in your heart. You say, God, I, ca- I cannot untie the knots precipitated by this anger. But God, you surely can. Maybe it's being patient with your kids. Maybe it's not worrying so much. Maybe it's loving that difficult coworker or peer who you just have a hard time and sometimes you're fresh in the flesh and you wanna punch in the face. You're like, this is hard. I can't do this on my own. And here's what we need to understand is that when we come to the end of ourselves, we then and only then will come to the beginning of God. And when we do, what are we met with? Condemnation? Critique? Wouldn't it? No, we are met with the strength of His grace that empowers us. So Paul tells Timothy, it is by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that we are what? Empowered. We are empowered. What is grace? And uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you could talk about grace. Uh, grace is God dealing with the root of our sin. You think about mercy. Mercy is God dealing with the results of our sin. You think about peace, that's God dealing with the relationships that have been separated because of our sin. But here's a way, here's a way that you can just think about grace. Grace is God enduring the condemnation that we deserve so that we could enjoy the commendation that only He deserves. And one of the watershed lines that has just been following me around ever since last Sunday's sermon that Pastor Kyle said is why do we watch movies? We watch movies to help us learn how to live. And I had never thought about it that way. But why is it that we get caught up in the drama, we get caught up in the adventure, and we get in our feelings, (laughs) and we want the hero to emerge, and we want the villain to fall, and we want redemption to come? It's because we're looking for a tutor on how to live our lives, and I think one of the one of the best movies to help you really take a long, hard look at how you're doing in life is Forrest Gump. So, whenever you think about Forrest, you see a brave man, you see a bold man, you see a loyal man who loves someone who is the complete opposite, and that's Jenny. So, the progression of the plot all throughout the movie is Forrest pursuing a woman who will not love him back. A woman who runs, a woman who resists, a woman who rebels. And at some point in the movie, you're just like, Forrest, you could do better. Why do you keep pursuing her? Why do you continue to welcome her? And it's in these moments that you see, and I I went back and I actually watched the the final scene in in, in one of the final scenes in Forrest Gump when Jenny, uh, Forrest is out there just just like a great guy mowing his grass. Okay, he's out there on his rotting lawnmower, he's mowing the grass. And then under this big tree on the horizon of his lawn is this moment that just takes you to redemption. Jenny is coming home, coming home to be loved, coming home to receive grace. And when we see this moment in this movie, this ought to let us know that the story of Forrest and Jenny is the story of God and you that when you ran, when you rebelled, when you resisted, God was there to welcome you home with grace. And what is it that grace does for us? Why does it strengthen us? Because really grace does three things. Grace welcomes you home. Grace says you have not wandered so far that you could not come home and be welcomed. You have not done done something so bad, so unspeakable, that the love of the Father applied through the work of the Son could not welcome you home back and lavish you with his love. So grace will welcome you home. So for the person you feel like you've gone too far and you've done something so bad that God could never love you, that is a lie. That is a lie from the devil. And he wants you to believe that so that you'll never come home and that you will forever be separated from him. Don't believe it. But the second thing that grace does is grace changes our hearts so that when I receive grace, I now have a reordering of my priorities that wants what God wants, that takes me to the places that he wants me to go. And maybe it's you leveraging your life here in Winston-Salem, or maybe it's us leaving our lives behind to go and plant Coastway Church. But what it does is it takes you to a place where your heart is changed and you now want what God wants. And it's beautiful, it's flourishing. It's how we have a forever future. But the last thing that grace does is it multiplies our hope so that I cannot keep this goodness to myself. I have to get this out. I have to pass this on. This must multiply through me. And something helpful and nuanced about grace so that we don't drive our lives off into the ditch of excusing our sin or overlooking our sin? Well, there's grace for that. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. So why is it that the church must advance? Why is it that we must gather? Why is it that we must grow? Why is it that we must go? Because the primary way that God is accomplishing and advancing his work in the world today is through his spirit-empowered people in the local church. And the way that we see his work, work in others, is by being a part of a community that has God as the father and the church as the family and the mission as the future. And we embrace that together. Next, what we see, I wanna show you in verse two, the method of multiplication. So we see the grace of God is the means of multiplication. I want to show you relationships are the method of multiplication. So verse two, take a look. Paul says to Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So again, let's do some noticing. How many generations of discipleship are described in this verse? So okay, let's let's count together. And what you there's there's Timothy have heard from me, there's Paul, in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men three who will be able to teach others also. So what do we see from this? Four generations of discipleship. And what this ought to tell us is that any true vision for multiplication is going to be multi-generational. And so we need to ask the question, let's come in close on what really counts. Can we do that together? What generation am I living for? Am I living for me, myself, and I so that my impact dies with me? Or am I living for the future, for the family? That's where flourishing happens. And I just want to talk to you for a moment on such a personal level on how the multi-generational multiplying vision of Two Cities Church has blessed me and my family and will bless the entire Grand Strand. So uh, the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham has this vision to plant a thousand gospel-centered churches by 2050. That's a bold vision. I want to be a part of that. Well, Two Cities Church, uh, God put it on Pastor Kyle's and Pastor Dave's hearts to really own that vision, to plant Two Cities Church out of that vision, and then plant more churches that would plant more churches out of that vision. And so the vision that began in Raleigh-Durham has now multiplied to Winston-Salem through Two Cities Church, and is now about to multiply in Myrtle Beach and Conway. And it's because you have embraced this vision of a multi-generational, multiplying movement. And let me just talk a little bit to you about how you're doing that. Uh, you are not just believing the best, you are sending your best. And so I think, is is John Michael in here? Um, maybe, no? Okay, well, uh, John Michael, he and his family um, is, okay, no, uh, I don't think so. We can't do this in every service, but uh, what I will say is that John and Donna Michael, uh, some of your very own, uh, John is going to be the executive pastor for Coastway Church, and you are the ones who are sending him. amen. 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 But some of our very best friends and some of your very best members are uh, Travis and Amanda Motsinger and their two kids. And guess what? You are sending them to join us on mission in Myrtle Beach. And we couldn't be more excited. So what are you doing? You are multiplying disciples. You're multiplying groups. You're multiplying leaders. And you are multiplying churches. And for that, we say thank you. Paul says, entrust to faithful men. Notice how God, what does he do? It's, It's inside out from the culture. He puts character Before competence. And what Christian character is, is not, it's not about perfection. It's about direction. And if you want to know just a simple way of thinking about this, to summarize what is character. Character is the sum of your dependence and your desire. If you want to know the state of your character, just look at on what or on whom am I depending. Or what is it that I am desiring? Desiring. And it's interesting because through history, God has has specialized in using ordinary, everyday men, women, and children in extraordinary ways. Apparently, one of only 12 of the disciples was from a more sophisticated, affluent area in Judea. And guess who that disciple was? It was Judas. Failure to launch. God's first choice is often the world's last choice. And what he does is he specializes in using people who are more impressed than they are impressive. And so to the impressive people in the room, uh, because I know some of you are here, uh, there's good news. God can and he will use you too. <laughs> and th- but there are just going to be some unique obstacles that will need to be overcome in order to get there. But when you look at the characteristics of the men and the women who God uses, you look at Exodus 18, you look at 1 Peter 5. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you see the scope of emphasis is on the character of the heart, not the competence of the hands. Robert Coleman uh, wrote a great book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. I would commend this to you as a great resource on multiplying the faith. But in that book, Robert Coleman says, the people who God works mightily through are the people who are willing to follow. There's dependence and wanting to be used. There's desire. This is the form of Christian character. And if you think about it, what was it that qualified Jesus to take your place on the cross? Well, it was his character. Yes, he was competent, but the reason he was, his competence was driven by his character. And we do see that God also, he he puts character first, but he does care about your competence as well. Because we see in verse 2, able to teach. So what does a good uh, multiplying disciple do Well, they do what a good parent does. A good parent is going to say, I I did it. It can be done. You can do it. Now I am here to help you. I did it. I learned how to pray in a way that was not stale or stagnant. I learned how to share my faith. And I'm actively doing that. I learned how to go to the word of God for a word from God. I did it. If I can do it, you can do it. It can be done. And guess what? I'm going to be here to help you along the way. And so uh, Robert Coleman in the Master Plan of Evangelism, here's what he says. He says, one living sermon is worth 100 explanations. And what I want to do is I just want to take a a moment. I want to honor your leaders while admonishing you. Because here's here's what uh, the sad reality is. There are not enough churches like Two Cities Church who clearly and strategically equip their members to be under the word of God, around the people of God, and on the mission of God. So uh, here's an example. In a time when most churches were minimizing, Two Cities Church, you have been multiplying And the reason, I think it's because you have leaders who want to take you further faster by giving you relationships undergirded by resources, catalytic tools that will allow you to multiply the faith. And one of the more recent tools is uh, this reading plan in the book of Acts that you have the opportunity to walk through in community with others. And there's even a, a, a way for you on the back of this reading plan, a way for you to get into the word of God and hear clearly from God. And these are available outside at the tent before you leave, or you can talk to your community group leader, but the way that you are being equipped to actually own your faith and have competence as you multiply the faith by your leaders is truly incredible, and I, I don't know about you, but every time that I'm talking to Pastor Kyle, every time I'm talking to Pastor Dave, every time I see Carrie, I'm just saying thank you. I'm saying thank you because these resources that they are giving you are also multiplying through Coastway Church. But it's not just resources, it's also relationships that we see. Faith comes through Christ alone, but faith is not intended to remain alone. We believe that discipleship happens in relationships. The way that you form, the way that you flourish is going to be around the people of God. Uh, You need to be in a place where you can have an open Bible. Okay, what is an open Bible? That's authority. And I would just be curious to know, who, who gets the final say in your life? What is the authority in your life? We all need it, but we all tend to kind of be allergic to it. But God's word can be the authority, the guiding light for our lives, an open Bible, but also an open life. That's authenticity. We we need both of those in order to ultimately flourish. And the goal would be for, for Two Cities Church, you already do this so well, but for there to be more of this attitude to view the church as relationship and responsibility, not just a time and a place. And here's some caution tape for us to be careful. If faith is not multiplying through you, it may have never multiplied to you. We, we, this, this is a sober moment. We have to ask the question, is Jesus really first? To the point to where I would want to share him with another person and pass on the faith. God has given us one job. What is it? It's to be fruitful and to multiply. So a good application question for you it would just be, have I owned the faith to a place to where I could have a posture like Paul to Timothy? And I could teach someone how to share their faith. I could teach someone how to get in the word of God. I could teach someone how to pray. If that's you, own the assignment and make disciples and multiply the faith. Or if you're just like, I need to learn those things, then identify a spiritual mother or a spiritual father in the church. Get into a community group Get into a DNA group where you can go further, faster in these steps of faith. Next, we see not just the means of multiplication or the method of multiplication. We also see the mindset of multiplication. This is in verses 3 through 7. So here's, uh, what's the difference between a manager and a leader? A good manager will tell you what to do, but a good leader is going to teach you how to think. And Paul is a good leader. He doesn't just say, hey, Timothy, here's a method, here's a manual. He says, here's a mindset. Here's the way that you think in a way that will multiply the faith. So verses 3 through 7, they answer the question, how does a multiplying disciple think? And what we see is they think like a soldier, they think like an athlete, and they think like a farmer. I'm curious, would you ever include Christian in that progression? Soldiers, athletes, farmers, high commitment Willing to sacrifice, clear vision. And this is what Paul is getting at. This is to be the Christian as well. Verse three, take a look. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What is this all about? Well, we see a good soldier suffers for their superior. In the military, a good commanding officer, what, what has What has he or she done? They have gone uh, into battle more than you and they have gone into battle before you. They have suffered more than you, they have suffered before you and therefore their voice and their influence is qualified to lead you through the battle as you advance. That's Jesus. Jesus went into the throes of sin and suffering more than you did and before you did and he came out on the other side having passed the test and qualified himself as the chief commanding officer of our lives. And so when we listen to his voice then we're going to have light in our life as we face the battle. And it's important when we think about a soldier you think about wartime. And church, this is this is a wartime. This this is not peacetime. We are soldiers not civilians. There and here's what we need to understand. There is a real devil with a real power with a real plan to destroy you and your life and your future. And here's one of his most effective tactics. If he can't do it instantly, then he's going to do it progressively. And Paul tells us what that's about. Take a look. Soldiers do not get entangled in civilian pursuits. Now, this is not Paul saying, hey, pull up the drawbridge and form a Christian enclave and, you know, basically stay away from those who are far from God, but close to you. Don't. That's, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is is this is about dist- the distracted Christian. And how do, how do I know if I'm distracted from God's purpose for my life? You're gonna be saying this a lot in response to the commitments of the faith. I'm busy. I, I'm, I, I would love to be a community group. I, I'm just really busy. I would love to come to the Weekender. I, man, I'm busy. I, I would love, I would love to be faithful on a, a weekend serving thing, but I, I'm just really I'm really. Busy. I would love to share my faith. I'm just. I'm just busy focusing on my family. There's work. There's kids. There's a hobby. There's sports. All of these reasons why we can't take a step forward. And here is the sobering reality for us to understand: is that when we are too, when we are too busy to make disciples, we are too busy worshiping idols. This, this may sound kind of cheesy, but uh, this actually happened. I was uh, walking on the beach, um, and uh, as I was walking, I kind of looked behind me, and I saw, I saw my footprints, and the, wave was, the waves were coming in, and it just totally erased them. Just like that. It was gone. And I just started thinking, that's my life. That's my life. I get, you get one shot at making a difference, and we don't want to uh, allow that difference to go unmade. Take a look at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So what are we seeing right here? A good athlete plays by the rules. Let me just ask you this. Who makes the rules in your life? Because the one who makes the rules is the functional ruler. Uh, Think about this through the lens of an athlete. I'm I'm curious, uh, if you you keep up with Major League Baseball, this will probably resonate. If you don't, I I think it could still be meaningful. But when you hear the following three names, I'm curious what comes to your mind. Jose Canseco, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire. Those guys hit a lot of home runs. Those guys were very talented. But that's probably not what goes through your minds. What probably goes through your minds is that they cheated and that they used performance-enhancing drugs to help them do those things and get those accomplishments. And this is what happens, this is a micro example of a macro problem that we all deal with. This is what happens when we seek to make our own rules. Our name gets marred and ultimately our needs go unmet. And God gives us rules for our good, not for our grief. Think about it, why do do we put boundaries around a fire? Why do you tell your kids, don't run in the road? Or your teenager, be home by 9 p.m.? It is because you want them to enjoy God's design without being destroyed. And anything that God designs, Satan is going to distort. And you can argue with the things that God has designed and said, this is for your flourishing and suffer, or we can agree with God and we can be saved. But when God gives us rules, here's the grace. He gives us resources. He gives us his word He gives us his people and he gives us his spirit. And Paul is saying, this is how we ought to think. Last example, verse six. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So what we see is that a good farmer works hard for the harvest. You remember that commercial, So God Made a Farmer? Have you seen that? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. It's on YouTube, but basically it talks about the everyday lifestyle of a farmer and how it's just so high commitment. It's so all in. And at that point, you're, you, you, you see this commercial that describes the lifestyle of a farmer and you're like, man, I could work a little harder. <laughs> that's, that's an excuse remover. And this is important because multiplication is hard work. It takes time, it takes tenacity, it takes toughness. It takes a lifestyle ahead of leisure. What the farmer understands is that the work they do today will make possible the fruit they enjoy tomorrow. This is how we ought to think. And speaking of thinking, last verse. Paul says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So I want to tell you a story that's going to make me blush, but hopefully make you better. So one of the things that we have been doing as we have been saying goodbye to where we grew up and saying hello to where God's leading us, is we have been going around these different destinations in Asheville. And one of the places, it's in a downtown context, Uh, we were actually going uh, uh, in downtown Weaverville and my daughter, she saw a wedding dress through a window pane and she was mesmerized. Like she loves to play dress up. And in this moment, I was just thinking about what is that day gonna be like when I'm going to a wedding dress shop with my daughter to pick out that dress? And I was all up in my feelings. And I don't know if you can see it. I think that there's a picture, but there's a window pane that slants inward kind of like this, okay? No, it would have been good for me to do some noticing at that point because what I did is somebody walking by would have thought that I was like a Stone Cold Steve Austin impersonator because I go in to look at that window and I headbutt that window pane because I thought it was flat, not slanted. And I was totally embarrassed. My wife was laughing at me out in public. And in that moment, I was like, that's bad for me to do on that window, but that's great for you to do with the gospel. Because when you come in close on the gospel, you're gonna hit your head. And it's not always gonna feel good. But here's why we should, because when we fix our eyes and focus on Jesus, we're going to see that he is the ultimate soldier who went before you into battle, who suffered more than you, and who through his wounds put himself on the firing lines for your sin, for your insecurity, for your isolation, for your distraction, for your destructive habits, for your overworking, for your overfunctioning, for your overfixing, for your lust, for your laziness, for your lies, for your sin. Jesus stepped between the bullet meant for you and he took it into himself. And by his wounds, we are healed. He is not just a good soldier, he is the good soldier. And we see that Christ is the ultimate farmer. He didn't just sow a seed from his hand into the ground. He sowed sowed the seed of his life into the ground so that you and I could have the harvest of a fruitful future and a forever family. But not only this, he's the ultimate athlete. He actually competed according to the rules. And in competing according to the rules, he crossed the finish line in victory, but instead of being crowned, with a crown of victory. He was crowned with a crown of shame that was meant for you and was meant for me. And he did that for you. He did that for me. This is why, Two Cities Church, we are going to multiply the gospel through the grand strand and to the entire world. And we believe, we believe, this is why you should give your life to multiplying your faith for him. For a God who did all this for you, will you multiply your faith for him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that is in Christ Jesus that we so desperately need. We thank you that though we have wandered, though we have resisted, you stand ready to welcome us home. And God, I just want to apply the power of the gospel to the mind of those who are listening today, the person who thinks that they're too far, Lord, um, where there's a lot of recovery and there's a lot of shame, God, would you welcome them home? Would you welcome them home? And would they call upon your name and be saved? God, would you change our hearts? Because we don't desire what you desire naturally. And God, we need you to take us to that place. We need you to take us to that to that hope. And, and Lord, speaking of hope, would you multiply our hope? Would you not just multiply the faith to us, but the faith through us, and let us have the big, bold, brave commitment to pass on what you have poured in through the gospel of Jesus. We love you, Lord. We lift you high. It's in your name we pray. Amen.